How great is it, almost providential actually, that we read a mighty, or that we sang a mighty fortress is our God and nothing but the blood. I couldn't have asked for a better hymn to be sung. I could almost read again all verses of a mighty fortress is our God for our sermon tonight. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, our Father, come and address us, miserable and wretched sinners, once again by your Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as most of you know, we are making our way slowly through Romans. Uh, when you read through Romans, yeah, you can't let your mind rest for, for even a second because Paul writes in tight arguments. And in some ways, it's tough to just drop into the middle of the book. But that is exactly what we have dared to do here at the 5 o'clock because we started with chapter 5. But tonight we arrive at Romans 7, 15 through 25, a passage that is not, shall we say, the simplest or the easiest to understand. Let me read again a piece of our passage for tonight's sermon. This is Romans 7, 24 through 25. You could pay attention in your bulletin if you'd like. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wretched, body of death, deliver. These are the words that stand out as soon as you read verse 24. Something is clearly terribly wrong. And Paul wants us to know it. Paul wants us to know that the situation is disastrous. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The great American Southern writer Flannery O'Connor wrote this. The serious writer has always taken the flaw in human nature for his starting point, usually the flaw in an otherwise admirable character. Drama usually bases itself on the bedrock of original sin, whether the writer thinks in theological terms or not. The Christian novelist is distinguished from his pagan colleagues by recognizing sin as sin. Recognizing sin as sin. If O'Connor is right, it should perhaps not be very surprising to us then that an increasing number of people, even people who have grown up in the church, find the church's message just so uninteresting. If a drama that is good usually takes sin as its starting point, or perhaps we might go one step further. If O'Connor is right, namely that the writer or the artist begins on the bedrock of sin, then perhaps we should not be very surprised that much of the art, the writing, the movies that comes out of contemporary Christian America 
It's not all that great, and we shouldn't take it with too much seriousness. While the work of so many non-Christian artists, they seem to get at something much more drastic and deadly and despairing. Take, for example, the work of Josh Tillman, who goes by the name of Father John Misty. He's the former drummer of Fleet Foxes, but he's gone solo in recent years. The word that probably describes Father John Misty's work is cynical, and if there's one thing he's passionately angry about, it is the foolishness of religion in our hopeless age. Listen to these words from the song Pure Comedy from his most recent album, where he says our world is so dark it's like comedy. Describing religion, he says this, the only thing people request is something to numb the pain with until there's nothing human left. Just random matter suspended in the dark. I hate to say it, but each other's all we got. It's telling that a recent New Yorker article about Josh Tillman recounts how his whole life is really a a rebellion against his conservative evangelical upbringing. Because Josh Tillman finally wants to let the darkness of his soul and the darkness of this world grip him. So I think we Christians should find it a welcome relief when we have artists like Tillman or when we have artists like the alternative rock band 21 Pilots who sing this. Can you save? Can you save my? Can you save my heavy, dirty soul? The message is that something is drastically and terribly wrong. And no amount of self-improvement is going to help the situation. This is likely surprising to most of us white suburban Americans who are drunk on moralism, therapy, and sentimentalism. It is a cardinal virtue of Americans to approach life with a slap-happy, self-reliant, you-can-do-it-think-positive-thoughts approach. That is why, for most of us, we don't really need an intervention. We don't need someone outside of us to rescue us. We need self-help. Sad to say that much of American Christianity mirrors the culture in this regard. It is only American Christianity. It is only American Christianity that could take the godless crucifixion of Jesus in which he dies a slave's death and turn the cross into some cutesy, southern, bright-colored accent for our front door. Only American Christianity could do that. The theologian Richard Niebuhr got it right when he famously wrote back in the 50s about the tendency of much of our American church life. A God without wrath brought men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. This is because much of what we feed ourselves is a blend of therapy, sentimentalism, self-help, and pseudo-spirituality mixed with a little bit of Bible and God talk. Rather than facing up to reality, rather than facing the darkness and death and looking it squarely in the face, we would rather skip straight to the glory story. 
We don't need an intervention. We don't need a rescue. We just need a little bit of uplift and encouragement. We just need Jesus to give us that Red Bull to give us the extra pep to cross the finish line. Fleming Rutledge wrote this, Optimistic American Christianity resists the notion that the human race left to itself will self-destruct. In other words, much of American Christianity is dishonest. And when you have that, you might have religiosity, you might have spirituality, you might have uplift or therapy, but you do not have the gospel. But for the people who find their identity in the gospel of God, there is no room and no place for any of this kitsch American uplift. The overwhelming message of Romans from beginning to end is humanity's total non-innocence. It is precisely this theme, this thread, that Paul wants us to pick up on in Romans 7. As he puts humanity's guilt, being under the power of sin, into sharp relief. Remember Paul's despair. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul wants us to go to that low point with him. He wants to strip us naked. He wants to plunge us deep into hell. He wants us to cry that cry of despair too. That we are wretched men and women. We are, in the words of our Anglican confessions, miserable offenders. And we have no health in us. It is fundamental to understanding Christianity to recognize the human condition for what it is, for what Christians call sin. It is not because we are half-glass empty people that we say this, but we are honest. We must face up to reality about ourselves and about our world. What are we to think of ourselves? Something is drastically and terribly wrong, says Christianity. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If we have any thought whatsoever that we just need a little encouragement to unlock the innate goodness inside of us deep down, Paul wants to make absolutely clear that this is not the case. There is no room for whipping up better morals, and equally futile is trying to bring about some corporate social action to correct the solution. And we are sorely mistaken if we think we should place ourselves on the side of the righteous and call the other people out there the unrighteous. The gospel knows nothing of our American pseudo-spiritual God talk. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? For Paul, he has one otherworldly message that he wants to deliver. He has one arrow in his quiver. He wants to deliver the otherworldly gospel of God, the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He has no room for spiritual uplift or encouragement or sentimentality or religiosity. The situation is too drastic 
too despairing to now turn to religion to correct the problem. Instead, we must get news from across the seas. We must get the news to tell us who we are, that we are enslaved under the power of that great Lord, Sin, capital S, and its partner, Death, capital D. Where do you find yourselves, says Christianity? You find yourselves in a prison, and there can be no escape. This is precisely the point that he wants to underscore from beginning to end in Romans, even in tonight's passage. In chapter 1, Paul says that we are enslaved minions of sin, death, and the devil. In chapter 1 and verse 16, he writes this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness of men. But what is the unrighteousness of men? It is the whole business of human existence. It is the whole course of of our world as we know it, from beginning to end, top to bottom, the unrighteousness of men. When 21st century readers, when when we read this about the unrighteousness of men, we tend to think in individual and moralistic ways. We tend to think in individual misdeeds. But Paul wants us to know that if you think that, you are trivializing sin. You are not taking your enemy seriously enough. Because in chapter 2, he turns to the religious person who agrees about the unrighteousness of men. He turns to the church people, you and me, and he says, you who agree with me about the unrighteousness of men, you too are guilty. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. He repeats his point in chapter 3, in case we yet haven't gotten the point. What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all are under sin. Paul knows that the religious person, most especially the Jew and the Christian who are familiar with their Bible, that we might turn to some sort of religion to finally save the day. And Paul reminds us that there can be no escape. None are righteous. And so if you're holding on to his argument, if you've not fallen asleep, if you've you've paid attention to his tight logic so far, you are going to ask, well, then what about the law? What about the law? Should we not try to fix our situation by using God's good, righteous, and holy commandments? And says Paul, no. Because that would be your final human attempt, your most evil deed. It would be sin in its most dastardly form. It would be the unrighteousness of man. There can be no escape. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Before the law of God, says Paul, every mouth is silenced. Before the law of God, we are dead in sin. Before the law of God, all of our religion, all of our non-religion, is rendered unrighteous. We find ourselves in a prison that we cannot escape from. The situation is hopeless. And so when we arrive at tonight's passage in chapter 7, Paul is pulling together all that he has said up to this point. He has to ask the question that we are all likely asking at this point, if you've been paying attention to his tight argument. Are you saying then, Paul, that God's righteous and good commandments, his law, is what has brought death to us? No, as he writes in verse 13, it was sin producing death in me. It was sin. Did God's law produce sin and death? No, it is the unrighteousness of man. It is because you are in your prison. So what are we saying? Just to summarize this section of chapter 7 very quickly. Paul is here picking up and plucking the thread of sin, the theme of sin that he has been emphasizing from the beginning. And now he is circling around the block three times just in case we don't get the point. He is repeating himself and underscoring it three times. So we have three sections in tonight's passage. And just to simplify, I'm just going to highlight the end of each section. So verse 17, if you're looking at your leaflet, verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, it is sin that dwells within me. And a third time, verse 25, the end, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. What Paul is doing here is he is giving us the plight of our situation. He is giving us the diagnosis of the human condition in three strokes. And he is simply repeating himself to underscore the point again and again and again because we don't like to hear this message. He wants us to recognize the gravity and the weight of sin, which is why I am repeating it again and again as Paul does in his passage. He wants us to see as verse 13, sin is sin in order that sin might be shown to be sin. He's a good writer, like Flannery O'Connor wrote. He recognizes sin as sin. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Martin Luther nailed it, pun intended, when he writes this. Paul, good man that he was, longed to be without sin, but to it he was chained. I too, in common with many others, longed to stand outside it, but this cannot be. We belch forth the vapors of sin, we fall into it, we rise up again, buffet and torment ourselves night and day. But since we are confined in this flesh, since we have to bear about with us everywhere this stinking sack, 
We cannot rid ourselves completely of it or even knock it senseless. We make vigorous attempts to do so, but the old Adam retains his power until he is deposited in the grave. The kingdom of God is a foreign country, so foreign that even the saints must pray, Almighty God, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Reckon not unto me my guiltiness, O Lord. If you chance upon such a man, he is no Christian. We the church, we are the human society who have heard the news from across the seas. We've heard the word from the other side. There can be no escape from your prison, says the gospel. Shall you believe more? Shall you try harder? Shall you muster up some religion or some piety? Shall we polish brass on this sinking ship? No, because the highest, the best, the most religious human attempt that you could possibly muster is but the unrighteousness of man. All have sinned, and Paul wants us to be rendered speechless. He wants our titanic ego to crash and burn upon the iceberg. He wants us to see reality. He wants us to give up all hope. Who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from this body of death? And at the last moment, at that last moment of despair, comes the news. The divine nevertheless. Nevertheless, says God. The news we could not possibly have anticipated. Chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The message we get is an otherworldly one that we could not have expected. There is no patching up of the old, no sewing a new piece of cloth to the old quilt, no patching the bullet hole with a band-aid. Jesus Christ is not here to fit into our pseudo-spirituality of America, our kitsch, our therapy. He is here to announce freedom to the captives, to bring deliverance to us sinners who find ourselves in a prison. Jesus Christ is not a figure of this world. He is the crucified, the risen, and the ascended Lord of history. The news of the gospel is no human possibility that we could finally muster up. It is God's possibility. We need a divine intervention. The kingdom of God is a foreign country, and God in Jesus Christ is making all things new. This present evil age is passing away. We, the church, we're the group of people who gather around the news of the gospel. All we are is prisoners who watch for and await deliverance. We're prisoners who are waiting and watching for that day. And that is why Paul will conclude his letter to the Romans with this word in chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Apart from an intervention, 
We humans will self-destruct. We are bound. We are imprisoned. We are unrighteous men and women. Before the law of God, all of us are silenced. And we are captives to the great Lord, sin. And yet, there is still a greater Lord. The Lord of the living and the dead. The one who was dead and now lives. The God of Israel has raised his servant, Jesus, from the dead. We are the community who gather around and celebrate that good news. Jesus Christ is our victor, and he is our savior. Paul here in chapter 7 writes a good drama. He starts on the bedrock of sin, as Flannery O'Connor says. But every good drama needs a good conclusion. So church, look up. Rejoice. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.